High Road Books, a new imprint from University of New Mexico Press, invites you to an online event with Rick Bass to discuss Fortunate Son, selected essays from the Lone Star State. The Twig in San Antonio will host on Thursday, July 8th at 7 p.m. Central Time. To register, visit their website, thetwig.com. To whoever Some scientists have said that we have 12 years to turn this around. Well, it's not going to get turned around in 10 years. What we can do Senator, if is this doesn't get turned around in 10 years, you're looking at the faces of the people who are going to be living with these consequences. The government is supposed to be for the people and by the people and all the You know what's interesting about this group is I've been doing this for 30 years. I know what I'm doing. You come in here and you say it has to be my way or the highway. I don't respond to that. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the web editor. Maybe you don't remember Diane Feinstein being confronted by Sunrise Movement activists, but it's certainly burned into my mind. Despite overwhelming scientific evidence, an appropriate response to climate change hasn't come. Instead, Government action on climate has been incremental at best. And at worst, it has only made the problem more severe through compromise, inaction, and the rolling back of protections. But it's also apparent why the threat of climate change hasn't been taken on. It's an enormous issue, complicated by lobbyists, dark money donors, and a decades-long disinformation campaign funded by fossil fuel companies. In the June issue, Greg Jackson offers a new way to think about climate change, positing it as a just war, a necessary war that is bloodless and unifying, something that would bring out the best in all of us. I spoke with Jackson about his piece and how reframing this existential threat could be our best chance at survival. You cite several journalists and veterans who argue that despite how horrible war is, it can, quote, awaken us to the deadness of the everyday of life without meaningful struggle and thus meaningful triumph, end quote. And this put me in mind of Andrei Bolkonsky from War and Peace. Uh, If you don't remember, because there are like 50 characters in War and Peace, he leaves his family in the hopes of fulfilling these grandiose dreams of glory on the battlefield, but then he's wounded at Austerlitz and he's looking up at the sky. He thinks he's going to die and he just, for the first time in his life, he sees the glory of nature and it marks this abrupt end to the alienation that drove him away from his wife and his family and he just has this newfound appreciation for Basically, he undergoes a transformation that you are advocating in the piece. Were there any fictional sources that inspired the thinking and ideas of your article? Well, I love that this is the question you start with because it forces me to admit that one of the real omissions in my canonical knowledge and reading, maybe even the greatest omission, is never having read War and Peace, which is... uh, Totally embarrassing because my wife is named Natasha. Uh. <laughs> you know, I've obviously read a million books about war that take place in war, conflict, and seen probably even 10 times as many films. So all these fictional accounts of war filter into my consciousness. But I actually don't think personally that 
any of them were very instrumental in writing this piece. It really was nonfiction accounts that I read of people who had been to war, been in wars as fighters, as journalists, journalists embedding, war journalists, that seemed to bring home to me this question of sort of the uncomfortable contradictions of war, how awful it is, and this sense of meaning, urgency, belonging, intensity that's both seductive about war and maybe seductive in a way that's a bad thing, like a, like a drug some people compare it to, but also that kind of casts everyday life, quotidian life, in a light of somehow being lacking or lesser and being so because the stakes of actually living, surviving are not always tangibly before us in everyday life, although what we do on a daily basis is involved in living and continuing to live, but we're often sort of alienated from that reality. And I think being brought in touch with it opens up a kind of vista of meaning for people who've experienced war and thought about it deeply and don't try and sugarcoat what's so terrible about it. So it actually was nonfiction more that focused on that kind of tricky, messy moral territory in my experience than fiction. But I would say one other thing, which is just that writing fiction as opposed to reading fiction probably does influence my view on all of this a bit and the piece a bit, which is just to say that when you write fiction, you spend all this time being very intensely focused on personal and subjective experience, sort of emotional and interior experience of being a person. And that does kind of educate you into some of the contradictions of being a person. And I think one of the salient ones for me is just how much the things that are demanding and difficult, challenging and uncomfortable in life, uh, uncomfortable because it forces you to grow, to confront challenges, to deal with other people who are difficult and different. All these annoying things that you'd probably rather not do, you'd probably rather just sit on your couch and scroll on the internet if you were, you know, just mm -hmm. kind of going with the path of least resistance. These more difficult things are usually the places that you feel glad you experienced and you feel that you've drawn meaning from in life and you feel some fulfillment from. So in that sense, I do think I'm very often and acutely aware of this challenge between what we want to do and what we want to have done and often you know avoiding what's difficult or ask something of us is really the wrong way to go it takes a lot of kind of willpower or fortitude to embrace the challenge but challenges are also where we are most enlarged and enriched and where we locate the most meaning or fulfillment in life at least in my experience absolutely no and um it it is interesting that your piece is sort of it is in part addressed to people who might want to downplay or outright deny climate change, but also to people who understand climate change as a problem and want to take some action, but perhaps feel overwhelmed by the enormity of the problem, feel like they have no uh, political agency to achieve something. So I... I I was curious, how did you, why did you choose to address everyone? Because I think it would be easy to just address one side or the other. I mean, it, it is a very, I think what makes it unique is that it is very much, as you were saying, it's encouraging everyone to undertake the challenge and to really think about 
engaging with something that's difficult. Absolutely. And there's so much there. There are a lot of different points to make. But on the one hand, I think that it is really just such a large shared challenge that in some ways, leaving anybody out of addressing it is a kind of, not just a mistake, but it seems to leave out the possibility of being meaningfully involved in confronting and hopefully triumphing over what's probably going to be the greatest challenge of our lives as a country, as a citizenry, as a world. I think also asking something of people, meeting people, asking them to have things to contribute or find things to contribute. I mean, I think this is so much more enriching than telling people what to do or telling people you don't need them to do anything. You just, I don't know, maybe need their money or their attention. You want them as readers or you want Mm -hmm. them as consumers or customers. We have to be asked to give, I think, to care about something tangibly before us. We can't just be asked to care in the abstract. And a lot of what I'm obviously concerned about in the piece and in general in other writings too is how abstracted we've become from the world around us and the problems we face as a consequence of living so much of our lives through symbolic and mediated and representational forms. And, you know, it's obviously we would wish not to have to deal with this, but considering there's no option about dealing with climate change, it does present an opportunity to try and re-engage with something that's just so physical and material and practical and that maybe does offer some relief or reconnection after lives that have become, I don't know, just so wrapped up in a kind of abstracted symbolic sphere of screens and ideology and, I don't know, whatever you want to pose against sort of practical material facts of life. Right. Your piece beautifully makes the case that the dire stakes of addressing climate change make for the same kind of challenging moral opportunity that in the past has been created by the necessity of certain wars. Um, and that it could potentially provide millions of people with what you call er meaning. But there is one point in that comparison that seems hard, which is the idea of an enemy. If a just war is one that makes beneficial use of a tribalist or an us versus them faculty in human relations, does it follow that we need to make climate change more recognizably human in order to confront it? And what would that mean? Well, I don't, I don't think we should. I'm sure you, if you're in the market for doling out blame, can find people or countries or targets for blame that take human form. But on some level, obviously, war and war mobilization is a metaphor. And as such, it is only perfectly applicable to what it describes. And it does have some imperfect aspects as an analogy. But I don't think when I kind of delved into some of the literature on people's experience of being in war, I didn't feel like the essence of the tribalism or the kind of what Sebastian Younger writes about the protection of tribe, this compelling idea of the protection of tribe. I didn't find that that actually was often fixated on a kind of hatred of the enemy or the other fighters, it was much more about protection of the group, achievement of the group's goals and objectives and missions, the solidarity among people engaged in the fight, 
you know, I want to tread lightly because I'm sure people have tons of different experiences of being in war and I'm not the best equipped to say what's the truth of it or not. And I'm sure there are instances where people are extremely fixated on the kind of enmity towards the enemy. But I think actually the kind of tribalism maybe you're talking about where there's a us and them and an other, and that's really the motivating factor. I see that a little more in the kind of tribalism of a country going to war, the sort of nationalism that takes root in maybe xenophobia and maybe a lot of other negative emotions that takes root in the country that's at war with another country or with an adversary. My sense of actually being in the fight is that a lot of what's positive about it is how much you're fixated on on protection, on the bonds that arise in protecting one another, caring about somebody and knowing that their life rests in your hands and your life rests in their hands. And I could be wrong, but I don't think that you necessarily need a kind of human enemy to achieve some of that. There are going to be all kinds of crises, catastrophes, disasters that require very urgent action in the face of you know, climate violence or what I call climate violence, just to draw the parallel more closely. I don't know. I hope that maybe that could band people together in some of this degree of solidarity. But it is definitely true that to motivate the type of sacrifice and action that people take in wars, there has to be a really strong sense of a clear and present danger and threat. And climate change is a little bit more diffuse and long time horizon than that. So there may be places where the metaphor, the analogy breaks down a little. I'd, I'd rather let that happen and try and force the analogy or shoehorn it in too tightly. Right. No, I think um, that's wise. And also, it is interesting to think of a war where hostility wouldn't be a motivating force, that there is this sense of solidarity motivating it. Because certainly that that is a part of war. But again, the idea of a, a non-hatred war is, is, is kind of fascinating. And one of your final admonitions is the striking statement, every human is real. And you use the word real quite a bit throughout this piece, and it does a lot of work, and there are variations on it, including unreal and unreality. Do you have any thoughts about what this concept means to you, how you tend to think about it, what makes something real as opposed to unreal, and, and what it has to do with war? Yeah, and I might just amplify one thing you said before answering that question, which is just that the sort of promise in the shared endeavor, the shared threat that we face with climate change is that it really is this global crisis where we all are on the same side together. And we could maybe even return to that at the end. But I think, you know, that is the hope. I don't know if we can address it in the way with the urgency and clarity that we would a war. But the hope is really that we would achieve some of that sense of really shared purpose and compromise and sacrifice and belonging with one another without having an enemy that has to be a person we want to harm. In fact, not just people, basically all living things are sort of on the same side of this fight. So there's something really ecumenical yeah. about that. To answer your question about reality and the real, I think there are two directions a little bit this spins off in, and they definitely relate. There's one that's more about what we were saying before about virtuality and mediation and a 
abstraction and screen life, and we can definitely get to that. But one of them that relates more directly to the admonition that you cite of every human is real that I think about a lot is just at the basis, what is moral, it seems to me, grows out of how we want to live, what is nourishing and fulfilling to us, what enables and encourages life, what encourages human flourishing. And so on some level, there are very practical underpinnings to what is moral, and we should build up those ideas from these practical underpinnings. I think in a realm of greater abstraction, where a kind of symbolism enters into our apprehension of reality because we're dealing with facts that are distant from us, that we don't confront face-to-face in our immediate life. We're dealing with people we'll never know, people as statistics, you know, stories that we have no real meaningful or discernible connection to. When we exist in that realm, we actually start to kind of go from the opposite direction. We don't build up morality from the kind of basis of what really is the good in life. We build it sort of down from certain dogmas or ideologies. We create kind of theories of how the world works, and then we sort of impose them, I think, from the top down. I think this is sort of the difference between what I think of as moralistic versus moral discourse. And I think one of the real problems with moralistic discourse with discourse that cares more on some level about seeing reality validate or vindicate what it believes than knowing the truth or having the truth turn out to be something different is that you kind of can stop believing in the reality of other human beings. And one way that manifests is I think, and I don't think most people would admit this, but I do feel like this is probably how a lot of people operate on the inside and the very human capacity. You almost would prefer to see other people suffer than to be wrong, mm-hmm. or you rather see the world enact a kind of punishment on those who disagree with you or didn't do the right thing in your view. And I think the idea that every human is really real and their life truly matters gets subsumed under the need for these impersonal forces, whether society or nature, to confirm or validate an ideological point of view. And it's very human. I'm not even fully criticizing this because I think that there are inevitable reasons this is the case, but I don't think we're always as honest as we could be about what it really means to take the reality of other people seriously, the reality of strangers, the reality of people grouped into statistics, and how this all relates to these two modes in which we live, sort of screen life, what I call screen life, like all the apprehensions that we experience dealing with devices with screens versus immediate life among people and things that are in our immediate vicinity. And I do think that there are consequences for how real we take other people to be and whether we value our beliefs or the true difference in diversity of actual other human beings more. I think that calculus gets kind of shaken up and sometimes distorted in a somewhat unpleasant, albeit human and understandable way. Mm. Yeah, and that certainly ties into the discussion of godlessness. But again, a an ecumenical idea of 
God, you quote one soldier from Vietnam that rather than an actual God, that that we that we as humans have to answer to something or to someone, even just ourselves. And that godlessness is having no one to answer to. And that's so much of modern life and war itself, obviously, it perpetuates this sort of godless abstraction of fellow human beings. And I found it a very um found it a very helpful way to 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 think about that again because of how polarizing things are, or just that in the quote by J. Glenn Gray that you say in the piece, we're forgetful of the fact that the sun and the air and the water and the soil are not simply things of our environment, but natural powers and fibers of which we are made and which enable us to be sustained in existence every moment. And that through this process of alienation that kind of runs throughout modernity, we lose something and we're losing something vital that we need to reconnect to. Yeah. I mean, I find, I find that quote that Gray cites of this soldier and I feel like in the book, there's maybe even a little more context. It was a soldier in Vietnam who I think Ray even kind of characterizes as not a particularly deep thinker or some person who was a sort of special moral paragon of some sort, but who reported the war crimes of his unit. And when asked, he just said something that seems so simple, but so true and cuts through so much of the kind of gymnastics we could do to try and talk about what God or morality is. He just says, you know, it just is having something to answer to, maybe even just ourselves. And I think that that's kind of corollary or the same formulation of the idea that what we do matters, even if nobody's watching or nobody notices. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to be some moralistic scourge or, and say that, you know, I always do the right thing when, people aren't watching or that that's an easy thing to do, but cultivating the belief in yourself that doing the right thing, even if you might not be rewarded for it, or it might not be seen is I think part of the ongoing struggle of leading a a decent life and being a decent person. And one of the things I wasn't thinking about this to your question made me think about it, but you know, I think we've come to live and maybe this is part of screen life and, virtualization of life, but we've come to live in a world where it's so unclear that things that are not documented or seen are even real. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems almost like a uh, a sucker's game to hold yourself to a standard that's not going to be recognized by anybody else or redound to your credit or help you be seen in a more positive light, that you might just do something that no one's going to notice that's hard, that's the right thing. You know, it's really it's really hard in general, and I think it's harder as we move into a world where we start to really question that things that are not seen by others are even real at all. Mm-hmm. And you begin this essay by saying that you first drafted it almost two years ago. And that's a pretty long delay for a magazine piece. And it speaks, among other things, to the lasting importance of your argument. What would you see changed between that first draft and the version that we have here? And I mean, this is more on the level of, of craft, I guess. Like, is it, is it normal for you to kind of work on something for that long? Well, I feel a little shy or hesitant about speaking out of school here because <laughs> I don't know that it was really working on it the whole time that was behind the delay. I wrote the piece much as it exists during the fall of 2019. 
think I probably finished it around the end of that year, beginning of 2020. And, you know, there's just delays in sort of the process of getting a piece out. And then the pandemic hit. And I think it really was the pandemic mm-hmm. that, well, I guess we can't forget also that there was a presidential election. So right. there just were a lot of other things I think that seemed really pressing. And I think that's most of what delayed the piece. It sat, I would say, idle for like 12 or 15 months. Basically, I wasn't working on it. And then it was picked up again. And a lot of things had changed. And there was some necessity to rewrite the piece to recognize those changes. I think the pandemic uh, foremost among them. You know, I, I wouldn't say that the piece itself changed so much in that time, although I think a number of things happened in the world that made me, I don't know, they seem to have interesting resonances with the piece. Most simply, I think the the language of this war mobilization metaphor became more common, partly in climate change discourse, but partly also in discourse around the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So that seems like an idea that's a little more present with us now than when I started writing it, although obviously it goes back a ways. I think the two things I saw happen during the pandemic that I think are kind of in dialogue with the piece, if you want to think about it that way, that are really profound. I think one is kind of hopeful. And one is kind of mm-hmm. really not hopeful. So I don't know what on balance the hope quotient is, but I'll, I'll <laughs> draw those out a tiny bit. I think the not hopeful thing I saw happen is that in some ways the pandemic you know, has certain qualities that resemble the climate change crisis in microcosm. It is this yeah. ubiquitous challenge. It's a natural force that you know does harm to humans in the way they live, and it's recognized through abstract scientific knowledge, but it is real, and at some point it will enter real life, maybe not for you particularly, but for other people? And how do we take concrete steps to address something that we're told is real, but that we only know and apprehend somewhat abstractly or indirectly? And even I think as people were getting sick and dying, I still think for a lot of people, it did have an air of existing in the kind of abstract knowledge realm. Yes, because death is death is so private now. So private. Yeah. And, and, and I think that is where a lot of the denial came from, is that you can't have a camera in a hospital room where someone is dying. There are a lot of reasons for that. But because we don't have those images, people chose not to believe it. And also like climate change, I would say that COVID-19 disproportionately affected people in the global south, people in developing countries. And that also leads to a disconnect from the problem or that it's somehow not my problem. Because when I go outside, I'm fine. Right. All these other people are fine. No, that's so true. It's another aspect of our kind of alienation from the true processes of life and death, the things that uphold us, the things that kill us. You know, there are reasons, I guess, not to be confronted with them day by day. We have to live our lives. We can't live constantly in thrall to that. I don't really relish going on a weekly tour of a morgue, but it does have some deep psychic consequence of you know, what do we really believe? What do we believe the relationship between these things we're being told mm-hmm. abstractly are and the reality on the ground? And you're absolutely right. Death was kept so far afield from most of our perception. All of this was so private, even often private from families. And there were whole swaths and classes, I'm just speaking within the U.S. now, that 
really saw the horrors or the ravages of this in the people they lost or people who got desperately sick and a lot of people who didn't. And mm-hmm. you would have hoped, I think, because the pandemic is more immediate, especially in the temporal sense, you would have hoped that we would have done a better job of banding together to confront it. And you would have also hoped that some of this kind of fracture of shared truth would have been walked back a bit or we would have kind of salvaged some degree of of common understanding and truth about something that's just a physical threat and reality in our environment. And I don't think we saw that. And in that sense, I think that's really scary for climate change, which if anything is more indirect and diffuse and it doesn't bode super well. So that's the dispiriting or unhopeful side. I did see some hopeful things though, too. Um, You know, I think on the one hand, we changed our lives in just unbelievably profound ways during this past year, ways that we probably never thought we would really be able to do. All the sacrifices people made in terms of their behavior are just unlike anything I think we've mostly known in our lives. And Mm -hmm. the fact that we could do that and do that as quickly is pretty remarkable. The fact that a threat could penetrate our skull to some degree and we could take action is sort of hopeful. You know, nothing about what we would have to do to confront climate change would involve anything like that degree of disruption to our lives. So we know we've gone through something, I think, worse on the personal level. Beyond that, we saw amazing heroic feats by scientists to develop vaccines and technologies that are now sort of getting the virus in check and promise to in the future. And these technologies are going to bear fruits down the line and lots of other issues, whether cancer or other pandemics. It's really remarkable. And it does tell us a bit about what scientific brilliance can do when unleashed against a problem that is urgent and exigent. And I think we should be really heartened by that. And if anything, we should try and unleash more of this scientific capacity to deal with issues of climate change. And two more small points of hope. One is that You know, we basically had to shut down a huge amount of the country. And, you know, there were definitely real problems and difficulties that that posed for the economy, but the economy was not destroyed, did not tank, is not, you know, in some terrible ditch that we can't pull it out of. So a lot of the grousing about, you know, addressing climate change would ruin or destroy the economy just seems super ludicrous in light of what we've just gone through. And we also appropriated a huge amount of unfunded, unfunded in the sense of not paid for with tax dollars, relief money to address the pandemic and address what it had done to people, the ways that it made their lives more difficult. We're talking many trillions of dollars. I've lost count of the total number of trillions of dollars. But the total amount that we spent in the past year is really more like what we would spend addressing climate change over a five or eight or 10 year span. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we could not afford to address climate change, that we couldn't afford to spend a fraction of what we just spent this year, every year going forward to produce, you know, amazing technologies that are going to redound to our wealth and prosperity down the line. It just, it doesn't make sense. I mean, the war metaphor already, or the war examples have already, I think, sort of undermined that claim. But we just spent all this money basically just to keep people housed and fed. and. And look, the economy is still okay. We didn't, I don't know. I just think that there's some really good lessons for the fact that we could really solve this. We could really do it. And a lot of the counter arguments for why we shouldn't 
seem pretty bogus, both in light of war and in light of what we just went through in the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I would I would push back slightly and say that the the stock market is very much separate from the economy or what people who do not work in investing or what have you deal with and that there are a tremendous amount of people who are out of work. Again, I think that kind of goes, or at least to me, I feel like that goes to a failure by governments to, you know, they recognize the need to shut things down, but there was very slow financial, very slow and small. Yeah, I'll go that far. It was very slow and small financial um, assistance given to everyday Americans. However, the idea that the U.S. government would even cut anybody a check just to keep them going for uh, across the board, regardless of their circumstance. I mean, that's that's a huge step forward. And for me, at least, one thing about the pandemic that has been fascinating to watch is how it has redefined work and that, you know, homes, which are have always been places of labor and work, are now recognized as the site of a different type of work, you know, real work, you know, as problematic as that is, uh, you know, the the idea that, you know, you could work at home and be as productive, if not more productive than you would be if you, you know, you get on a train and you go to your office and you log into your computer, all that sort of thing. And I think that redefinition of work and which spaces we consider places of work, places of business could very easily be translated to what you describe in the piece of creating new jobs that are directly dealing with climate change. And that doesn't necessarily mean some particular technological advance, but just something that you don't need a ton of training to do, that you don't need some sort of intense specialization to complete, that there's a huge opportunity here for people who have been left behind by the digital economy or are participating in the gig economy and just struggling to get by, that there is this huge opportunity to make addressing climate change an industry that everyone can participate in and feel good about participating in and and be a little less exploitative than uh, (laughs) other new fields of work that have emerged over the past 25 years or so. Yeah, for sure. I mean, let me validate first your point about the economy not being the stock market, I think it is very important to realize that, you know, top line figures in the economy can be looking healthy on some level and there can be a lot of difficulty and pain and misery for workers in all sorts of sectors and all sorts of segments of classes. And I don't by any means want to minimize that. I think my only real point I wanted to make is that I think there is this consistent boogeyman that people who don't want to address climate change trot out, which is that this will destroy our economy, right. quote, destroy our economy. And we're going to have to spend a certain amount of the coming years really dealing with the people we have left behind or have been harmed by life under the pandemic and you know things before that. And there's other deeper issues too. But I don't think we would say, or at least I wouldn't say right now, it looks to me like the economy is in some sense kind of hobbled or crippled and can't come back, that something has happened where things are so structurally out of line that it's going to be hard to get the processes of making things and providing goods and services back online. There might be some hiccups, but I guess I'm just saying, I think this thing that people say, which is like, oh, we can't afford to do this or we can't do X, Y, and Z, because it's going to 
ruin the economy. It turns out during a terrible pandemic, in which we lost a ton of life and lots of people lost work and were out of work and had to stay at home. It turns out that didn't destroy the economy in some unsalvageable way. And so right. putting people to work, as you're saying, really, you know, good jobs building infrastructure, energy grids, new types of wind and solar installations, rural broadband, you know, all the things that we can do that are both necessary for just the infrastructure of our life, the thing that undergirds just how we operate and are able to be efficacious as people. And also that you can feel yeah good about because it's working towards a future of clean energy. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's just so win, win, win. You know, it's like the old Donald Trump thing, except real. It's like you'll get so tired of winning. <laughs> <laughs> Probably shouldn't quote Trump. It makes it invalidates the point or something. But look, a stopped clock is right twice a day. All right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or more like a like spinning out of control clock is like yeah. right for like millisecond at some point. But yeah, no, I mean, I I think it is. I think it's just such a win. And I think there really are, I think it's important to realize, you know, people see work differently and want to have different sorts of jobs and lives. And there's a lot of opportunity for people who, who feel like aspects of life that involved their identity, dealing with the kind of physical structures of our built environment, our manufacturing, that this has kind of been shipped overseas. And a lot of it has in their towns and jobs have been hollowed out and to some extent their sense of self partly by losing those jobs there's like a totally positive set of things to do that involve rebuilding exactly those material constituents of our lives not to some kind of like prissy green <laughs> idea of harmony with nature exactly but just to you know just to a sustainable and reasonable, lasting, you know, not toxic, not deleterious version of, of much of what we do now, which is, you know, we use energy to live the lives we want to live. We just have to stop using fossil fuel energy to do that. But there are other types of energy we can, and we have to build those things. Right. And the scary thing about that, of course, being this might shift the balance of global power because... The, the amount of sun that shines in the Sahara could provide really power to the entire world. And that these extractive technologies that are rooted in colonial exploitation, that we might have to move away from that. That's, that's scary to people, certainly. But again, it is for the ultimate benefit of humanity. And, and you don't even have to put it in those terms. You just say, this is for the good of everyone. And that should be good enough. Your piece is sort of uh, like your last piece for Harper's Vicious Cycles, where you explored ideas about how the news cycle profits from the creation and intensification of ideologies. You know, the last time we were speaking on the podcast, we talked about the question of what non-ideological education might look like. And, you know, both of these essays are kind of growing out of similar concerns. So thinking of that, how do you read the connection between those two changes? Because again, they are significant, really difficult changes to ask, but they are absolutely, they they must take place in order for life on earth to continue. I'm really scared of, I think the thing I'm really scared of besides climate change, which I'm really scared of, and I think it's actually even worth prefacing to say that I'm not, I, I'm not going around being scared of, 
everything. There are a lot of things no. to be concerned about, but I think it is actually important on some level to pick the things that you really are scared about. And so I'm not saying, well, I, I'm singling out climate change as something that seems to me, if I'm being really honest and truthful, it's not a personal issue that, I don't know, calls to me for some special reason. It just seems to me the most pressing issue. And therefore, I feel a certain responsibility to be talking about it as such. The other issue that really scares me, I think, because it sort of becomes a slight meta issue of what can we do if we are kind of losing touch with reality and truth and the immediate world around us is what I take to be a kind of growing virtualization of life where we spend more and more of our life and time interacting with the world through a kind of mediation that is both partly in touch with things that are real, but the overall kind of experience of it and the media characteristics of it make it really sort of virtual and the distortions of reality and our relationship to that reality are just so hard to unknot, uh, cognitively unknot on, on a kind of deep psychological level that I just think the chances that we can kind of wrestle our way to truth through that morass are just really, really low. You know, that does seem to be the, the trajectory of society right now. Obviously, the pandemic makes us even more that way. I don't know. I don't know what the prospects of re-engaging with immediate life around us and the people around us are. Although I think as sort of a fan most of the time of Pope Francis, I, <laughs> I find something very moving in uh, his recent call to um, a culture of encounter and uh, take that to be kind of encounter with one another and encounter with people who we don't agree with or we wouldn't normally interact with people who are different and diverse in deep ways, not just the most evident ways, and um, really being with one another in real places and real spaces and the immediacy of our lives. I mean, this is maybe a little far afield, but I'm just thinking that a lot of the hope I would have for both climate change, but also trying to re establish or reclaim some sort of shared truth, some sort of common reality, seems to me to be rooted in somehow resisting some of this virtualization and getting back to actually encountering one another. You know, I think it could be almost too long a digression to really try and draw similarities between this piece and my last piece. But I would say about the issue of non-ideological education, I think the way I see it really is that you want as an educator, um, maybe they don't sound grandiose. I just think you want, as a person interacting with other people, I don't really want to tell people what to think or even make them think what I think. I mean, obviously, I think what I think is more right than the things I don't think. That's why I think it. But exactly, <laughs> yeah, I really want to. Um, I want to cultivate a space, I guess, in which it feels like people can become their authentic selves, come to authentic thoughts and feelings on their own. And that's hard. Sometimes we want people to be more like us or agree with us, and they don't. But I think also, if you are trying to kind of ideologically sway somebody or indoctrinate them or persuade them, you often turn the question of truth into a question of a combat of identities between you and this other person. And mm -hmm. who agrees with whom or who believes what becomes an assertion or counter-assertion of identity, whereas truth should really be a kind of higher calling. It should be something we aspire to, irrespective of what we want the truth to be. And 
escaping, I think, what are often kind of secondhand ideas that we get from the culture and people around us, from our communities, the way we were brought up, what we're told to believe, what we're pressured to believe, what we feel a lot of um, pressure in our work and online to agree with or believe. I think all these things get in the way of what I would take to be kind of authentic thought and authentic feeling. And it's a hard, it's a hard thing, but you know, as an educator, even hopefully as a friend, although I probably fail all the time as a friend at this, I do really try not to tell people what to think, but to show them kind of how I think and to the extent that it's compelling. Maybe they take something away from that, or maybe if someone trusts you or thinks you're interesting, there are aspects of you that they want to emulate or that they feel drawn to, and they make some decisions on their own. I think, you know, people are so much more powerful going towards things they want to go to than being pushed or dragged towards things. That seems to me to be the basis of what I would take to be non-ideological education, although I don't know if that was ever exactly my term. Maybe it was my term. I have no idea what I wrote in that previous well, we, <laughs> well, no, we were talking about it on the... Yeah, yeah, we were we were just that sort of just came up in our previous podcast conversation, but I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I think there are so many strong parallels between these two pieces, and again, you kind of have to solve one problem before you solve the other, and I mean, even though these are momentous challenges, um, and feel free not to comment on this, but you just had a baby, congratulations, yes, thank you, and like that that speaks to a certain type of a certain degree of optimism about whether or not these problems will be solved. And I mean, you were talking about the pandemic as sort of proof that this could happen. But I mean, do you feel that, you know, when presented with these very large amorphous challenges, we can pull it together? I don't know. I, <laughs> I used to see that, this, the kind of sense in that framing, and I'm not saying that that's even your framing, it's just one that I remember hearing a lot, and I think I kind of, I don't know, when I was a little younger, was more susceptible to a kind of argument of, like, is it is it just or is it moral to bring a child into the world if you think mm -hmm. things are dire or heading in a bad direction? There's a whole, I guess, other question that I don't really want to get into, although we could, about whether or not, you know, we should have more people on the earth. And uh, I have to say, I really don't believe the kind of um, overpopulation. Yeah, we're not, this is a Malthus free podcast. No Malthus. Okay, good. I'm glad it's a Malthus free <laughs> podcast. I mean, that pretty much is and has always been and will continue to be a Malthusian delusion, but you would be surprised at how, well, maybe you wouldn't, you probably actually know better than I do, because I don't spend much time online, but <laughs> uh, just how, how ensconced or how like, um, ineradicable this kind of idea is. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm not going to address, I guess, that here, just to say that I'm not worried about producing another human being some, you know, just terrible resource drain on the world. I do think we can we can shift away from using fossil fuels to using clean energy. I think we can do it with more or less the technologies we have. We have to make improvements over the next decade or two. But, you know, I see that we can do it. And if we can do that, I don't really see too much reason why human beings can't continue to thrive and even at slightly higher numbers than our global population now. But I think your question actually is a more profound one. You know, I, I just, I think basically you either think life is a good thing 
or it's not. And mm. you either think it's better to be alive than to be dead, or you don't. And if you don't, you know, maybe you don't think you should have more children, or maybe you don't think it really matters if uh, anybody else is alive or dead. I mean, maybe the pain of death is, you know, a hurdle that you wouldn't want anyone to suffer. But if you really don't believe that being alive is better than being dead, then it doesn't really matter, I think, that anybody lives or dies. Or, um, But I think if you believe that life is a good thing, you want to support and encourage and nurture and perpetuate life. And I, I don't see any option because I am glad to be alive right now. And mm. I want other people to be alive and to have interesting, rich lives and to flourish. And, and there are scary things in the world. There are things I worry about a lot for what the world will look like for my daughter and what responsibility that asks of me to try and really be somewhat better even about fighting even when I guess it's hard for the world I want to pass on to her, not that I have any real influence or very, very moderate, <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't what, like, what's the downside? Like the worst that happens is like we die, but like, We're, that's going to happen anyway. Yeah. We all die in the best case scenario anyway. <laughs> like this is like the project, like, you want the human project to continue, like have a baby and live. I mean, you don't have to, if you don't want to have a baby, you know, you can also be a fan of the human project, but like, if you don't like the human project, then it's like, I don't know. Do you like nature? Do you like movies? Do you like thinking? Do you like friends? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. It's sort of has, I guess, gradually over the years, it seemed like an interesting thought provoking kind of dorm bull session question. And then over the years, it just stopped <laughs> making sense to me. And, I just feel like I want to create an amazing person who has a good life. And I want that for other people too, not just for my own child and try and try and do that in little ways. Yeah. No, I think that's, um, I think that's an excellent place to end things actually. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was really, I'm, you know, the article is really lovely. And I think a really important way to think differently about climate change, which again is such a you know, it's just such a difficult thing to speak about meaningfully. And I think this is a step forward in considering this problem. So thank you. Well thank you so much. It was so great talking to you, Violet, and I really yeah. appreciate the conversation. It's so nice to hear your voice and hear that you're well. And I really look forward to the next time we talk being in a in a culture of encounter. Yeah. Yeah. That would be great. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save. 